How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did synchronized swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create the wrap dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers, because history matters. I'm in conversation today with Kermit Roosevelt III about his new book, The Nation That Never Was, Reconstructing America's Story. Thank you very much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. You obviously have a famous last name. How are you related to one of the Roosevelt presidents or to both of the Roosevelt presidents? Well, Theodore is easier. I'm Theodore's great-great-grandson. And because they were second cousins, I'm also related to Franklin, but that's a more complicated story. Okay. Um, So you've had an impressive academic career. Where did you go to college and law school, and for whom did you clerk after law school? I went to Harvard College and then Yale Law School, and I clerked for Justice David Souter on the Supreme Court. So um, you're now a professor at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Uh, What do you actually teach there? I teach constitutional law and conflict of laws in a creative writing seminar. Now, your academic specialty is what led you to write this book. Is that correct? Yes, this is part of my work in constitutional law. So what is the basic premise of this book? The basic premise of this book is that we misunderstand the source of American values and the source of American ideals. And we identify with founding America. You know, we think that our values of equality and liberty come from founding America. That's the America of 1776 or 1787, when in fact they don't. Those ideals are articulated in response to the injustice of founding America. They come out of sort of a dissenting movement there, which is basically abolitionism. And they assume prominence in the years running up to the Civil War. They basically win in the Civil War. They enter our Constitution through the Reconstruction Amendments. And they do so in a way that's not consistent with the ordinary amendment process. It's better understood as an overthrow and destruction of founding America. So are you like the Grinch who stole Christmas by telling us the Declaration of Independence is not the great document we think it is? Well, I don't think so. I think I'm giving you something much better because I'm giving you the Gettysburg Address. What I'm saying basically is the story that we've told ourselves that leads us to identify with the patriots of 1776 and Thomas Jefferson, you know, to hold out Thomas Jefferson as the person who stated our American ideals, that's actually a bad story. It tells us that treason is patriotism. It tells us to obsess about our own rights and ignore the injustices we inflict on other people. It tells us that white paramilitaries fighting the national government are our heroes. And all of those are bad counterproductive lessons, particularly now, particularly now when we have white paramilitaries like the Proud Boys fighting the national government, trying to facilitate a minoritarian takeover. So I'm actually giving us a story that can help us, that can help us move forward, that can help democracy survive this current challenge, and that should make us believe in America more. So this is a more patriotic story. Okay, so the Declaration of Independence in your book, 
you basically say that the preamble, which contains perhaps the most famous sentence in the English language, we hold these truths to be self-evident, is actually not that important a part of the Declaration of Independence. It really wasn't liberty and equality that Jefferson was talking about. He was really talking about unity, trying to unify the uh, colonies. Is that your basic point, that, that freedom and equality were not really what his main purpose was in that document? Well, his main purpose is not to talk about how governments should treat individuals going forward. He's talking about how the British government has been treating the colonists in the past. But the main point there is when Jefferson says all men are created equal, he's reciting a very standard principle of 18th century Lockean social contract theory, which his readers understood. So he's not saying the government has a duty to treat people equally. He's not saying people are equally deserving of concern and respect. He's saying in the state of nature, if there were no government, if there were no laws and people just popped into existence, this is why he says created. He's talking about hypothetical people. If people were created and came into being in a world with no government and no laws, no one would have an obligation to obey anyone else. No one would have legitimate political authority over anyone else. And basically, the point of this is he's denying the divine right of kings, which is a different theory of political authority and one that wouldn't work for the Declaration of Independence, because if George is king by the grace of God and rebellion against him is a sin, then the colonists are not justified in declaring their independence. So Jefferson is trying to explain where legitimate political authority comes from, when it ceases to be legitimate, and to show that the colonists' situation fits that case. He's not talking about a duty of the government to treat people equally. It's just a totally different thing. That reading comes from abolitionists. It's imposed on the Declaration later. So when he wrote the Declaration, he wrote it in three parts. The preamble, which was not taken as that significant a part of the document at the beginning. The sins of King George, which he elaborates to great length. And then what we're going to do about it, which is basically uh, free ourselves from England. When did the Declaration's preamble become so famous? Was it the abolitionists who made it famous or was it Abraham Lincoln? Uh, because after it was written by Jefferson in the early days, the preamble wasn't that significant. I certainly recognize that. But when did the preamble become so famous? Well, so the Declaration itself isn't considered very significant. It pretty quickly, once independence is achieved, falls into what Pauline Mayer calls obscurity. Pauline Mayer has a great article on this, The Strange History of All Men Are Created Equal, which really investigates precisely this question. And then the answer is that around the 1820s is when the abolitionists really focus on it, and then Lincoln somewhat later. And if you're looking for a single person who promotes this view, I think Abraham Lincoln is probably the most influential. But it is the abolitionists decades after independence who start looking for a federal document that talks about equality, the 1787 Constitution is not very good for them. It protects slavery in a number of ways. But the Declaration has this suggestive language about equality and inalienable liberty. And so they put an interpretation on that that it just didn't have in Jefferson's day. And they start saying, hey, look, America actually is anti-slavery in its heart. So what you're saying is that the interpretation of the Declaration, to some extent, by scholars, historians, and average people, most of our American history's interpretation of it has been more or less wrong? Well, one interesting question is what it means to be wrong, what it means to say this is what the Declaration means, because nowadays that's how we understand it. That's how we use it. And 
It's hard to say that's wrong if everyone agrees on it. But I am saying that's counterproductive because we bring along a lot of bad stuff when we focus on founding America rather than Reconstruction. But as a historical argument, I'm saying, yes, that is not how it was understood in 1776. That's not what that proposition does if you reconstruct the argument that Jefferson was making. It's something very different. Okay, so let's go forward a bit. Uh, The Declaration uh, is used as a, more or less, some would say, a propaganda document to justify the uh, decision to break away from England. And as you said, it was largely ignored afterwards. It wasn't an important part of our law. It wasn't considered a legal document. And it wasn't something people talked about a lot. And then uh, along comes the Civil War. And Abraham Lincoln, in his Gettysburg Address, makes a reference to it. And why is he uh, so enamored with the Declaration of Independence and the, the basic concept of equality? What did Lincoln do? And that Gary Wills had once called in his book about the speech, a kind of a sleight of hand. What was the sleight of hand that Lincoln did? Well, Lincoln's magic trick, or this sleight of hand, as Gary Wills puts it, is to make his listeners think that he is fighting for America, for revolutionary America, for the spirit of the founding, to make his listeners think that he is fighting for the Declaration of Independence. Because if you think about it, it's pretty clear to me he's fighting against the Declaration of Independence because he is fighting people who have declared independence. And he's saying, I reject your independence. I will use military force to compel you to stay in the union, right? No independence. And I will remake your society against your will. I will change your government. That's the new birth of freedom that the Gettysburg Address promises. And that too is contrary to the Declaration, which says governments get their authority from the consent of the governed. So the Confederates are saying, we declare independence, we withdraw our consent, both completely in line with the principles of the Declaration. And Lincoln is saying, no, in the name of the Declaration, I will stop you. So we are getting ready to celebrate the uh, 250th anniversary of our country's birth, as it's called, the semi-sesquicentennial. And that's marking 1776. The government didn't really start until around 1780, I guess, 88 or so. So why are we marking the beginning of the country's government or history by the Declaration of Independence and not the beginning of the Constitution, which really governs the way we operate? Well, this is another thing that Lincoln did. So in the Gettysburg Address, when Lincoln is counting back, he's counting back to 1776. And it was part of his theory that the United States came into being then as a single entity, which I think is wrong if you read the Declaration. What it says is these are 13 independent states with full power to engage in international relations. They're basically international sovereigns. So we're counting back to 1776, I think, one, because this is what Lincoln did and you know the Gettysburg Address is inspiring and influential, and actually I think it should replace the Declaration of Independence. But the other point is we're very tied to this idea that all men are created equal, states are fundamental values. And that's really what we're looking back to. Um, And then my argument, of course, is if you're looking for the value of equality, it's not there in 1776, it's there in 1863. And then when does our government, when does our modern American nation form? That's 1868. That's the ratification of the 14th Amendment. To go back to the uh, Gettysburg Address for a moment, uh, it begins with one of the more famous sentences in the English language. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. But that was the sleight of hand because the 
a Declaration of Independence had not, in your view, been drafted so that all men were created equal. Is that right? The question is not whether they believed that all men were created equal, but what that means. So if you say all men are created equal now, people think that means that everyone is entitled to equal treatment by the government or everyone is entitled to equal concern and respect from the government or something like that. And that's just not what it meant in 1776. So if you take this and put it back in the context of Enlightenment political philosophy, which is what Jefferson was articulating, he said explicitly, I'm not trying to say anything novel. I'm trying to put before mankind the common sense of the subject. And if you look at the other contemporaneous documents that explain these ideas more explicitly, like the Virginia Declaration of Rights, on which Jefferson relied, you can see that's about the state of nature. It is not about how governments should be organized. It's not about duties that governments owe, particularly to outsiders. So the key point about the Declaration, I think, from my perspective, is the theory of legitimate political authority that it gives you tells you that governments must protect the rights of the people who form them. But governments do not have that duty to outsiders. So if you want to enslave people who are not part of your political community, who did not form the government, that's not inconsistent with the Declaration, right? We think of the Declaration as an anti-slavery document because abolitionists picked it up and used it that way, but understood the way it was understood in 1776, it is not an anti-slavery document. So what Lincoln was trying to do in the Gettysburg Address that upset many people at the time was that he was saying that all men are created equal when many people in the North were saying, wait a second, uh, we're not saying that uh, slaves, if they're free, are going to be equal. And we're also fighting this war to keep the country together, not to establish that all men are created equal. Is that one of the concerns that people had with the Gettysburg Address as delivered? Well, I think that's true. Yeah. So you can see the aims of the Civil War and sort of the animating philosophy on Lincoln's side, which I would call the United States. You can see that changing. And sometime around 1863, it shifts from union. In the early days, Lincoln's speeches are all about union, restoring the union. He's trying to restore the status quo. He starts talking about nation as a singular and United States in the 1787 Constitution is a plural. So he's changing things. He's talking about the United States as a single nation dedicated to values that founding America was not dedicated to. And equality is one of those. Equality is probably the main one. So you suggest in your book that actually the beginning of the country, as we know it today, was probably around the Reconstruction period of time, because that's when the Reconstruction constitutional amendments, there were three of them, basically said that uh, slavery is outlawed, freed slaves are now citizens, and they also have the right to vote. And that, in your view, is what really began the country as we now see it. Is that right? Yeah. So one of the amazing things about the story that I'm trying to substitute for our standard story is it has sort of all of the same structural elements. So the standard story tells us there's this early statement of principles, our deepest beliefs. It's the Declaration of Independence. I give you that, too. It's the Gettysburg Address. The standard story says there's a war that's fought for those principles. It's the revolution. I give you that, too. It's the Civil War. And then the standard story says these principles are put into our higher law through the Constitution, meaning the Constitution of 1787. And I'm saying, no, it's the Constitution of 1868. So if you want to look for the 1776 analog, it's 1863. If you want to look for the 1789 analog, it's 1868. But yes, the Civil War and Reconstruction, I'm saying, are the birth of our America. And the important point here, the way in which this differs from what most people say is, I'm saying Reconstruction is not a fulfillment of founding ideals that, you know, somehow were unfulfilled 
in the founding era. I'm saying those ideas didn't exist in the founding era. And Reconstruction is a rejection and an overthrow of founding America. But you point out in your book that despite the effort to free the slaves and to give them so-called equal rights, women were ignored. So the Reconstruction Amendments did nothing for women to make them equal. Is that right? Well, I don't think it's true that the Reconstruction Amendments did nothing for women. So they did explicitly recognize and seem to accept that women could be denied the right to vote. But the Reconstruction Amendments had an animating idea of equality, which, again, you don't find in the founding. And the Gettysburg Address makes an explicit reference to democracy. So government by the people. And you don't find that in the Declaration. The Declaration of Independence is pretty clear about what it takes for a government to be legitimate, which is it has to be formed by consent and it has to protect the natural rights of the people who form it. And a monarchy can do that. A hereditary monarchy can do that. This is why the Declaration can't just say George is a king and therefore illegitimate. It has to go on to show that he's a tyrant. So Reconstruction gives us ideals of democracy and equality. And then the question is just, how do people deserve to be treated, right? What is fair, equal treatment for them? And that's where sort of social movements come in to demonstrate that different racial groups or women or people of different sexual orientations do in fact deserve equal treatment. So the Reconstruction Amendments give you the framework within which that takes place. They give you this value of democracy. They give you this idea that people's interests should be counted equally. And that's a framework within which you can have social movements expanding the bounds of equality and of who counts as a full and equal citizen. Now, as you note in your book, the Reconstruction Amendments, however well-conceived, didn't really have the desired impact uh, because, in effect, there was a revolt by Southern whites, uh, particularly the property owners and the people who had been large slave owners, against having African-Americans be office holders, have the right to vote and so forth. So when did this come about and when, in your view, did we really get closer to having the concept of equality and uh, freedom for people? Uh, because you point out in your book, it really didn't happen after the uh, revolt against the Reconstruction Amendments. Yeah, so I think it's important to understand that it did happen. In Reconstruction, we had integrated governments. We had integrated schools and police forces in the South. And then it's important to understand what happened to those governments, which is they were overthrown by violence. You had battles between these white paramilitary organizations and the legitimate governments of the reconstructed Southern states. And when the U.S. Army was there to support them, the legitimate governments could hold on. But when white America tired of the conflict and the division and federal military supervision was withdrawn, that's when the former Confederates were able to take back power. So after the Compromise of 1876 and after the federal military presence was drawn down to a point where it wasn't effective, that's when the promise of Reconstruction was sort of lost. And this is what historians call redemption, the redemption of the South. It's called the redemption by the people who are doing it. They think they're doing a good thing. Of course, they're doing a bad thing. But the fact that we still call it redemption shows, I think, how much that perspective, the perspective of the people who overthrew these legitimate governments, informs our modern understanding. So um, what actually happened, I think, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that uh, in the end, the people who were overthrowing the Reconstruction efforts were in effect saying that the Civil War had been fought not over slavery, but over states' rights. 
And all they were trying to do is recover the right of a state, a southern state, to rule itself. And they didn't really care that much about uh, slavery. And that's the way that they were rewriting history. Is that fair to say? Well, I think there, there are different versions. Um, the way that I would understand the lost cause ideology is this idea that there is a fundamental racial hierarchy in America. And this is sort of what you see in the movie Birth of a Nation, which is kind of the foundational document or the paradigmatic document of the lost cause mythology, where the idea is you've got founding America and it's a place of racial hierarchy and it splits into two more or less legitimate parts, the North and the South. And it's unfortunate that we have this conflict and brother is fighting brother. And it's a conflict among white Americans, which the lost cause mythology understands as a bad thing. And you can restore that. You can bring unity back to white America. And Birth of a Nation does this very explicitly because it follows two families on different sides of the Civil War. And then at the end, they get married. So you're reuniting white America. And that's done by restoring racial hierarchy. The climax of the movie is a moment very much like the ones that happened in, in real history, where the Klan defeats the integrated government of this South Carolina town. And what it's telling us is American unity is unity among white Americans, and it's built on racial hierarchy. And as long as the whites are exercising political power, because that's the next thing that happens in this movie, they hold new elections to determine who's going to be running things in this town. And formerly enslaved people turn out to vote. They're met by armed lines of Klansmen standing at the polling places. They turn around and go home. It's telling us as long as whites are exercising political power and we have racial hierarchy in place, then you can have unity and peace. And if you don't, you have conflict among whites, which is a bad thing that we want to avoid. So your view is that the American Revolution was not really a revolution so much. It was keeping in place the power structure that we had. The real revolution occurred during Reconstruction, or was it during the civil rights movement of the 1960s? Well, the civil rights movement of the 1960s is what brings back the promise of Reconstruction, basically. It's what brings the Reconstruction Amendments back to life after the period of redemption. So that's when we regain what we had briefly during Reconstruction, uh, but what we lost for almost 100 years. Okay. So your theory, is it one that you, you've written this book to kind of get people to accept your theory? And are you proselytizing about it and making speeches about it, writing articles saying the American Declaration of Independence is not what you all think? And actually, people have been misinterpreting it for a few centuries? Yes, I'm absolutely trying to publicize this view because I think that it would be good for the country. So what's happening right now, I think, is that people are finding that the standard story is not satisfying to them anymore. They're having trouble seeing Thomas Jefferson as a hero. They're having trouble looking at founding America, where in 1776, every state recognizes slavery. And they're having trouble seeing that as the cradle of American ideals. So particularly among younger people, I think this story is not working anymore as a story that brings us together in the name of American values. And one response to the weakening of the standard story, which you're seeing around the country, is this attempt to mandate it by law, the anti-critical race theory bills, which say, you know, you can't discuss racism. You must teach American history. There's a Florida law that says this. You must teach American history as the development of a nation 
based on the universal principles of the Declaration of Independence. But that's not going to work because it's very difficult to reverse a culture war loss. And that's basically what's happened here. It's very difficult to reverse a culture war loss by force of law. So the solution, I think, is to come up with a story that promotes the same values, that's more historically accurate, and that shows us an America we can actually believe in, shows us an America we can have faith in. And that's Reconstruction America. That's not founding America. So in recent decades or so, I've spent a small fortune buying historic copies of the Declaration of Independence. So did I waste my money because these things aren't that valuable, uh, unlike what I had once thought? And will your theory make these things even less valuable? I don't think it'll make them less valuable. Um, it depends on when they're from. So, I mean, you can look at the transformation of the Declaration over time, and I think that's very interesting. And, you know, your 1776 copies have immense historical value. It's just that they don't connect to American ideals in quite the way we think. So our American ideals are not there in 1776. They come along later. Um, and then they get poured into the Declaration of Independence. So it's valuable for that reason. So, as you know, when Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence, it was then put on the table to be considered by the uh, Continental Congress. And they made some 60 some revisions in what he wrote. And he was upset with it. And I think for uh, eight or nine years, he would not admit to being the author of it. Later, of course, he said he was happy to be the author and put it on his tombstone. But do you think had the document he wrote been actually adopted, would anything be different in what you're saying or basically his document? was more or less the same document in, in essence that the Continental Congress agreed to. And therefore, your points don't really change because of the editing that was done by the uh, Continental Congress. Well, I don't think that my points would really change. I think that the editing does show us one very important thing, which is that the declaration that we ended up with is not an anti-slavery document because Jefferson's original draft had a passage that criticized King George for introducing slavery to America and for engaging in the Atlantic slave trade, which is not quite the same thing as saying slavery in America should be abolished because Jefferson didn't believe that it should be. But it sounds critical of slavery and the Continental Congress took that out. So that establishes pretty clearly, I think, that there's simply no way they would have left in as the first self-evident truth, a broad moral principle all men are created equal, understood the way we understand it now, that condemns slavery, right? They took out an indirect criticism of slavery. There's no way they would have started with a blanket condemnation of slavery. So for a long time, Jefferson was idealized by American historians and by um, school children as the author of the Declaration of Independence. And this is thought to be a wonderful document. As we revise American history, uh, do you think that Jefferson will be seen as a less important uh, figure? for what he wrote? And what would you like American school children to really learn about the Declaration and about the beginning of our country? Well, I would like American school children to learn about the beginning of our country in 1863 with the Gettysburg Address. And I would like them to learn about the codification of our ideals in 1868 with the Reconstruction Amendments. So I don't want to portray Jefferson differently so much as I want to shift the focus away from the founding and more onto Reconstruction. I think we need to tell a national story that centers Reconstruction as the birth of our modern American nation. Even though Reconstruction didn't really stay into effect for very long, is that right? 
Yeah, that's right. So Reconstruction fails. And it fails because Americans are unwilling to endure the conflict that is required to sustain equality against white supremacist terrorism. And in just the same way that our standard story tells us, well, we have these ideals, but we don't really live up to them, and we have an original sin, which is slavery, the story that I'm offering says we have these ideals, but we don't really live up to them, and we have an original sin, which is redemption. But this is a better original sin to focus on, because if you think your original sin is slavery, then you think, as long as I'm not enslaving anyone, I'm being a good American. If you think that your original sin is redemption, then you ask, am I fighting injustice? Or am I standing by and letting bad things happen? And that's what I need to worry about. You know, being a good American is not just refraining myself from individual acts of injustice. Being a good American is seeing injustice in the world and understanding that it's not my fault. I didn't make that injustice, but it is my responsibility to do something about it. So are you a scholar who has um, developed this theory and um, are now talking about it, or are others adopting the same theory, or they developed it as well, maybe you've perfected it a bit. Are there other people who are pursuing this line of thought, and what are these scholars called, and what are you called, a revisionist uh, historian, or what would you call yourself in doing this? I guess I would call myself a revisionist historian. I guess people who do this are revisionist. I haven't really seen anyone else saying what I'm saying in quite the same way. One of the reasons that I believe this is a good idea, though, is that many people, you know, mainstream historical scholars and other revisionists are sort of 80 percent of the way there. So if you look at the scholarship about the Declaration of Independence, all the historians agree the preamble was not considered significant at the time. All the historians agree all men are created equal is a statement of Lockean social contract theory. Then somehow they just sort of accept that also at the same time, it was this novel, broad moral principle that had no relevance to the argument the Declaration was making, and in fact suggested that the colonists who were slave owners were in the wrong, without asking, gee, why would they put that in there? So mainstream history goes 80% of the way that I go. It just doesn't take the last step. But the last step, I think, is pretty much logically required once you've gone 80% of the way. So if you had a chance to uh, ever ask a question of Thomas Jefferson or Abraham Lincoln, what would you like to ask them relating to this subject? Well, I would love to ask Lincoln if he really believes that his version of the Declaration was Jefferson's version. Because this is something that I've struggled with. And Lincoln scholars tend to tell me, yes, he did believe that. But it's very interesting, the question, why do we locate these ideals in the founding? So Lincoln didn't have much of a choice. Martin Luther King, amazingly, in the 1963 I Have a Dream speech, does the same thing. So he echoes Lincoln. He looks back to the Declaration of Independence and the 1787 Constitution as the source of this ideal of equality. But Martin Luther King very clearly knew better because in 1944, as a high school junior, he enters an oratory contest with a speech called The Negro and the Constitution, which, like I Have a Dream, is about the question of what determines how black Americans deserve to be treated. And in that speech in 1944, he focuses on reconstruction. He focuses on the Civil War. He talks about conquering Southern armies with the sword. He says, if blacks are given the rights that they're entitled to, they will defend the arc of liberty, even by force against the traitors. So 
he's got this vision, which I think is historically more accurate. And it's got conflict in it, but he abandons it, right? When you get to 1963 and I have a dream, he's very peaceful. He's talking about the founding. He's talking about little white children and little black children holding hands. And the reason for that, I think, is not that he believed it, not that he believed these ideals are really there in the founding, but that he thought this was a way to enlist white support. And then I think he later in his life realized that didn't work. So finally, if you had a chance to ask any question of Teddy Roosevelt, what would you like to ask him? I guess I would like to ask Teddy Roosevelt for advice on the future, because he was certainly a high energy person with a lot of ideas. And I think it would be interesting to see what he would think about today's political climate. Well, let me thank you for your conversation with us today. Um, we've been talking with Kermit Roosevelt III, who is a great, great grandson of Teddy Roosevelt and distantly related as well to Franklin Roosevelt. He's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania Law School, and he's written a book called The Nation That Never Was, Reconstructing America's Story, which is published by the University of Chicago Press. Thank you very much for your time today. Thanks very much for having me. On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. You can share your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.